Hello, and welcome to this installment of the SOF Heyman Bookshelf, a podcast celebrating recent work by faculty members in the arts and sciences at Columbia University. I'm Constantine Lignos. Our next episode this season, celebrating recent work by Michelle Moody Adams, is drawn from a panel brought together on October 22, 2022, to discuss her recently published book, Making Space for Justice, Social Movements, Collective Imagination, and Political Hope. Michelle Moody Adams is Joseph Strauss Professor of Political Philosophy and Legal Theory at Columbia University. She is also the author of Fieldwork in Familiar Places, Morality, Culture, and Philosophy. Moody Adams is a lifetime honorary fellow of Somerville College, Oxford, and a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She has published on equality and social justice, moral psychology and the virtues, and the philosophical implications of gender and race. Here is Michelle Moody Adams introducing her new book. For much of the 20th century, social theorists presumed that collective action outside of conventional political institutions would almost always degenerate into collective irrationality. This presumption was not dispelled even during the 1930s and 40s by extensive nonviolent protests rooted in Gandhi and Satyagraha. The fear of irrationality was especially great when collective action was openly linked with anger. This is why Martin Luther King's 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail along with the movement it sought to defend, marks a critical turning point in history and in social thought. King was adamant in the letter that the demonstrations against segregation were rooted in righteous indignation. Quote, there comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair, end quote. Yet from 1955 to 1965, which is the classic phase of the civil rights movement, uh, the movement displayed a degree of collective rationality that had rarely been seen and in service of a moral duty to resist injustice wherever it exists, guided by a morally demanding methodology of nonviolence and openness to redemption and reconciliation. The movement combined collective rationality with moral aspiration in a way that few endeavors have ever accomplished. The civil rights movement is thus a pivotal episode in the larger story of social movements that led me to write Making Space for Justice. But it took several years for social and political theorists to acknowledge how much the civil rights movement actually changed the way we could think about social movements in general. In the late 1960s, John Rawls recognized that civil disobedience could have a corrective function in democracies facing partial compliance with demands of justice. In 1984, Michael Walter observed that insofar as we can recognize moral progress, it's more a matter of workmanlike social criticism and political struggle than paradigm-shattering philosophical speculation. But the most significant acknowledgement of the meaning of the civil rights movement came in 1991, when two sociologists, Ron Ironman and Andrew Jameson, defended what they called a cognitive approach to social movements. For Ironman and Jameson, the civil rights movement actually helped to confirm that progressive social movements are essentially forms of cognitive praxis, that's their phrase, by which they meant temporary public spaces that allow collective creation of socially constructive ideas, identities, and ideals articulated through social criticism and put hopefully into practice in political struggle. And making space for justice is an effort to build on this approach to reveal the philosophical importance of insights produced
produced by three kinds of movements. Social reform moves that since 19th century abolitionism have sought to make democracies more just. Democracy movements such as the Velvet Revolution in the 20th century and the Arab Spring in the 21st that have sought to transform authoritarian regimes into democracies. And finally, the global human rights movement as it emerges even before the end of World War II in Raphael Lemkin's work on the concept of genocide. My argument is that these movements have generated insights about political life and its moral underpinnings, which deepen social understanding and enrich philosophical reflection. Relevant insights come to light in policy proposals and manifestos, autobiographies and participant essays, documentary and journalistic accounts, and of course, writings by movement intellectuals. Now, I stress that despite the centrality of the civil rights movement to the story that I tell in Making Space for Justice, a movement need not be guided by the methodology of nonviolence to qualify as a valuable site of cognitive praxis. One of the book's central examples is the movement against South African apartheid, whose best-known leader, Nelson Mandela, declared in his 1964 speech at the Ravonia trial that he was prepared to die to help create free, democratic, and non-racial South Africa. Of course, he eventually relinquished violent resistance to enable a peaceful transition to democracy, and making space for justice frames his personal transition as an extraordinary expression of heroism and grace and treats its practical expressions as powerful contributions to philosophical reflection about democratic ideas. The book's philosophical methodology is mainly influenced by two traditions. Inspired by John Dewey's pragmatism, I defend philosophical humility in regard to social movement insights, yet my doing in humility does not diminish my readiness to assert the objective validity of social movement insights about the nature of justice. But secondly, I also draw on the work of political theorists Iris Young and Judith Sklar to urge that we cannot understand justice without taking seriously the facts and the faces of injustice. This is why the book contains more historical details than one typically finds in contemporary political philosophy. So these details are especially important for the chapters that comprise part one, in which I analyze the contentious politics of social movements. I show that these projects provide invaluable insights into the obligations of conscientious citizenship, the special demands of democratic citizenship, the social norms and political values that produce stable democracies, and of course, the nature of social justice. Now, regarding justice, social movements show that treating people justly is treating them with humane regard, a project that combines robust respect for our status as rational agents with compassionate concern for our vulnerability to pain and suffering. And I show in the book that regrettably, it's the spectacular failures of humane regard that usually best illuminate its content and confirm its moral and political importance. Social movements also show that defensible accounts of how to produce humane regard in institutions must reject what's often called the distributive justice paradigm, defended extensively, for instance, by John Rawls, in favor of what Iris Young described as an enabling conception of justice. Humane regard is not a distributable benefit of social cooperation. Instead, it requires institutions and practices in which we're free from disabling constraints. That is, it demands institutions in which we're able to constructively exercise our capacities for choice and action without unwarranted interference, coercion, or violence, and through which we're able to live relatively free from unnecessary pain and suffering. 
The chapters that comprise part two discuss social movement insights regarding the role of imagination in political life. And some of these insights anticipate compelling arguments from thinkers like Benedict Anderson and Charles Taylor, for whom imagination is necessary to constitute and stabilize political communities. But social movements have also recognized the socially transformative power of imagination and making space for justice analyzes three varieties of activism drawing on this power. First, aesthetic activism, as in the challenges to stigmatizing monuments and summer 2020, language activism, for instance, as in the emergence of the concept of sexual harassment, and narrative activism, as in, for instance, the writing and dissemination of 19th century slave narratives. So the final chapters in part three show that progressive movements succeed and the change they create is durable only when they harness the politically constructive power of collective hope. But a persistent challenge, as the philosopher Baruch Spinoza understood, is that societies can fluctuate dangerously between hope and fear. They can even be dominated by collective fear with destructive results. And the final chapters show how backlash movements, including contemporary varieties of xenophobic populism, actually try to garner support by rhetorically reframing ideas and policies rooted in fear and resentment as dangerous simulacra of hope. Yet the book concludes by considering a habit of mind that I call civic grace. Civic grace is capable of sustaining genuine collective hope, I show, despite great social upheavals. I show, in fact, at the end, that the best evidence of the power of civic grace often appears in the courageous work of movement leaders such as Martin Luther King, Vaclav Havel, and Nelson Mandela. Next, we'll hear from Serene Cater, J. Newman Chair in Philosophy of Culture at Brooklyn College, and a professor of philosophy and women's and gender studies at the CUNY Graduate Center. Her areas of research within philosophy include ethics and moral psychology, political philosophy, and feminist philosophy. She also works in the interdisciplinary fields of development ethics and decolonial and postcolonial feminisms. Some of the transnational practices she has analyzed in this work include microcredit, household divisions of labor, and commercial gestational surrogacy. Here is Serene Cater. If you are a person who finds yourself arguing with folks about why you're in the street or arguing on Twitter rather than writing to your congressperson, this book is for you. First, I just want to situate Moody Adams' contribution in a conversation in philosophy she very briefly situates herself in, which is the movement for non-ideal theory. And then I want to raise three critical concerns, but concerns from a friend who is persuaded of the relevance and rationality of social movements for the maintenance of democracy. Simply put, I think that Moody Adams is offering a novel argument that public reason itself is an idealization. Um, So without going into too much detail about the Rawls, Rawls argues that in order to sustain a just society, we need to be in the practice of giving reasons to each other. Moody Adams thinks of herself as kind of just criticizing Rawls's idea that the content of public reason doesn't need to be shifted. I think of her as making a more radical critique, which is that actually what we are currently calling public reason is not public at all, that our existing reason-giving practices actually exclude some people or only partially include people into the status of needing to have reasons given to them. And if that's 
right. That's a, a novel understanding of why public reason is a problematic idealization, because most of the literature out there saying that public reason is an idealization focuses basically on individuals not being rational enough to practice public reason or not liberal enough to practice public reason. Um, Moody Adams has this beautiful reading of the phrase Black Lives Matter in the early parts of the book. And one of the things she says is this phrase is really not a phrase about the interests of Black Americans at all. It is calling for respect for equal standing. I think that's right. But I also think that if that's right, if the current state of many oppressed and marginalized groups in the states is currently one where they lack equal standing as deliberators, then I think it has to follow from that, that public reason doesn't yet exist. In fact, it's something to be achieved and something that we have to work hard to try to get to and maintain, which I think fits nicely with like the Deweyan spirit of the book also. Now on to my kind of critical-ish comments that come from a friend who is also convinced of the value of social movements for democracy. First, I just wonder if the mechanism by which Moody Adams takes social change to happen through movements is too cognitive. I see that they're trying to prove that they're rational, but I wonder if maybe we went a little bit too far in that direction. So I have two kinds of counterexamples in mind. One might be movements that focus on reorganizing physical space before they focus on changing hearts in mind. So I think arguably we can think about the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa as originally taking that kind of form as saying, we need to be allowed to work here, move here, go here, rather than change the way you see us as persons. A second type of counterexample I have in mind is one that you kind of mentioned briefly, which is an idea developed by Cheshire Calhoun, which is the idea that social movements can engage in a type of moral vanguardism, where they develop moral understandings that are initially not totally accessible to the dominant group. And Calhoun says, when that happens, it may be appropriate to seek institutionalization of the movement's goals, maybe even before everybody is on page with the movement's goals. So to give kind of an example of that, we might think of a lot of practices around trans rights that have recently arisen that, for example, it maybe is not yet obvious to the mainstream of the United States that it's wrong to call a trans person by their pre-transition name. At the same time, we see academic journals, for example, creating practices that make it easy for people to change their name for articles that they wrote before their name change. This seems to me like another ex example of a case where the way that the movement affects social change is not necessarily through mechanisms of changing hearts and minds first, but rather through institutionalization and the cognitive change if it happens, happens later. So that's my first kind of critical concern. My second critical concern has to do with in-group, out-group dynamics and the discursive norms that contribute to what Moody Adams calls humane regard. So one of the things I love in the book is that Moody Adams pays attention to how important it is for social movements to create self-regard and hermeneutic resources for oppressed groups, right? Like, so feminists had to engage in consciousness raising to be able to name what was happening to them and then to be able to do something about it. But then there's something else she wants to say in the book, which I kind of read as a criticism of call-out culture or something similar, that says humane regard for people in the mainstream or in the dominant group can be diminished by excessive focus on microaggressions and these kind of things. So I'm sympathetic to that worry, but at the same time, I just want to point out, I often think the real purpose of call-out culture is not necessarily to speak to the dominant group at all, but rather to build up epistemic resources and self-esteem for the 
the oppressed group, right? So the real point may be for the oppressed person to de-gaslight themselves and to say, well, that thing that the people in the dominant group think is not that big of a deal actually is a huge deal. That's why we're going to make a big deal of it amongst ourselves. And then other people might come along better later. So I just wondered if you had anything to say about that tension. And my last kind of critical question has to do with group-based oppression and how effective the enhancement of humane regard is as a tool for fighting against it. And you probably don't remember this, but you brought this up during my talk when I was here last. So I think we may also have kind of a deeper philosophical difference about individualism. But basically, I am not totally convinced that it's lack of respect or empathy for individuals that's really an issue morally in cases of group-based oppression. Because of that, I'm also not totally convinced that enhancing humane regard always works as a tool against group-based oppression. My concern here is also that sometimes humane regard can actually distract from structural problems, not just because of features of our psychic apparatus, but maybe also because of how it's less threatened or like susceptible to use by through motivated reasoning for members of the dominant group or people who are benefiting from structural. Next, we'll take a listen to a question posed by an attendee of the event, one which responds both to Moody Adams' introduction and Serene Cater's comments. Let's listen. Well, I actually agree with you that in the book, I took some of your contributions to suggest that, in, especially in the case of the monuments, it's very important that the social movement, in order to direct attention to something that we should contest, they need to first reorganize space. And I thought that was a very powerful insight. But I kept wondering, then does protests have to end on day two, once the media gives attention to this moral problem? So part of how I read the book is it's a response to intellectual elites who say, okay, you protested now go home and in some parts of the book i feel like you're saying no like pro social movements are ways of civic engagement they are contributions to moral inquiry but i think in emphasizing inquiry rather than persuasion maybe you are also opening up a response from the intellectual elite that says okay our attention is directed now join our task force stop protesting and let's try to solve this problem and that solution never comes it's a delay tactic by the elite so i was wondering if you had any thoughts about that wow you asked a question that actually has many layers like a lot like the commentary that we just got I, i'll say a couple of things about it part of what i want to say maybe is the big point is that the result of any form of activism that's drawing on the imagination, but all the other kinds as well, I think in the end should be something that ends up being dialogic, not a one-way persuading, here's the right thing. In another context, I got asked whether I expected the Tea Party to sit down with you know, Black Lives Matter. Actually, in the longer term, that's exactly what I would want. And I would want it to be understood that there was nothing that the movement itself could say in advance that should foreclose new possibilities that they've not themselves imagined. So I, no, I don't think the protest should end on day two. And I, I don't think that the satisfactory conclusion to the protest would be something that just come join our task force. Because that's, of course, either just going to be one way, we have the ideas and the knowledge, you listen, or it will end in something that isn't really demanding a profound change and a profound internal rethinking on the part of both parties. In this, I confess, I'm very 
very drawn to the King view about the, first of all, the kinds of activities you engage in. Are they open? To, do they suggest an openness to this kind of re reconciliation? I don't know that you can reconcile with everybody. I'm sure there are some members of some of the groups that we have in mind when we think xenophobic populism who wouldn't want to talk. But I actually don't believe it's all. And that that is the hopeful side of this. Lastly, We'll hear from Robert Gooding Williams, M. Morin Weston Black Alumni Council Professor of African American Studies and Professor of Philosophy and of African American and African Diaspora Studies at Columbia University. His research and teaching interests include social and political philosophy, especially the philosophy of race, the history of African American political thought, 19th century European philosophy, especially Nietzsche, existentialism, and aesthetics. Here, is Robert Gooding Williams. Michelle Moody Adams has written a particularly compelling book that is rich in philosophical insight, subtle in its argumentation, and it is important to add, beautifully written. Making Space for Justice is a pleasure to read and is certain to reward the engagement of philosophers and non-philosophers alike. Indeed, the engagement of any democratic citizen wishing to deepen their understanding of the contributions progressive social movements can make to promoting democratic ideals. To those of us who knew the late Iris Young and who have been inspired by her work, it is similarly wonderful to see how throughout Making Space for Justice, Michelle builds on and refines some of Iris's key insights, for example, her defense of inclusive political communication and her idea of an enabling conception of justice. And among philosophers involved in the epistemic turn in ongoing critical discussions of social movements and social protests, as in the work of Sally Haslanger and Jose Medina, for example, Michelle's arguments for regarding social movements as forms of cognitive praxis will soon be regarded as indispensable additions to those discussions. As you've already heard, Michelle kicked off this evening's celebration of her work with an excellent overview of the lines of thought that she develops in Making Space for Justice. For my part, I will concentrate on just a couple of those lines of thought, both stemming from the last third of the book entitled The Importance of Political Hope. First, I shall say a few words about Michelle's engagement with Giorgio Agamben and Slavoj Zizek around the theme of hopelessness. In particular, I draw on the work of a contemporary philosopher, Tom McCarthy, to propose a supplement to Michelle's arguments against Zizek and Agamben. Second, and again to supplement Michelle's arguments, I suggest that we can regard W. E.B. Du Bois's critique of a particular strain of Civil War historiography as contributing to what Michelle, following Maurice Mandelbaum, calls a pragmatics of history. On Michelle's account, Zizek and Agamben alike believe that political hope in our times is intellectually indefensible. In addition, she attributes to Zizek the view that today true courage involves an admission of hopelessness. Regarding the second claim, Michelle persuades that it is morally unconvincing. Regarding the first, again, that political hope in our times is intellectually indefensible. She is less persuasive. For Michelle's rejoinders to Zizek and Agamben, that the practical consequences of adopting their theoretical posture will involve deadly and widespread violence in the guise of progress, as in the reign of terror and the excesses of Stalinism and the Khmer Rouge. That rejoinder even if correct, omits to show that their theoretical posture as such is incorrect, or at least questionable. It seems to me, however, that again, to supplement Michelle's argument, one might engage Zizek and Agamben on their own turf, at least to the extent of sketching an account of what an intellectual or theoretical defense of political hope might look like. And here again, Thomas McCarthy's work is helpful. Inspired by Kant's idea of a universal history, McCarthy argues that moral politics demand, he says, reasonable hopes for practically feasible futures, hopes that are supported by basic patterns of development and tendencies of contemporary history. And moral politics demand reasonable hopes, he insists, 
for the political pursuit of social justice will make sense to us only if we have reason to believe that the just future that is the goal of our politics is a politically achievable goal. But what reason could we possibly have to believe this? The answer to this question McCarthy proposes is precisely the sort of reason we adduce when we construct plausible interpretations of persistent patterns and present tendencies of historical change in light of which the just future to which our moral politics aspire can be said to be practically feasible. McCarthy conceptualizes these interpretations of historical change or development as grand narratives that, while providing practical orientation to moral politics, should not pretend to scientific objectivity. To be understood neither on the model of what, recalling Kant, McCarthy calls the mass of determinate judgments available from empirical inquiry, nor as a version of philosophies of history that figure human history as the self-articulating movement of an abstract principle such as reason, freedom, or civilization, think of a certain version of Hegel, the sort of storytelling McCarthy endorses is a form of Kantian reflective judgment that must take account of and be compatible with known empirical data and causal connections, yet also go beyond those data and connections in presenting a reading of what is known that, though subject to contestation, is at once credible and able to warrant our moral political hopes. McCarthy gives a compelling account of the role that narrative can play in buttressing the hope that moral politics demands. In Michelle's terms, he provides a framework for defending a sort of narrative activism that can be adduced to answer Zizek's and Agamben's skepticism as to the prospects for a theoretically and thus intellectually defensible endorsement of political hope. I turn finally to Michelle's defense of a pragmatics of history, a concept she adduces to meet the objective that a politics too dependent on claims about historical injustice may risk encouraging politicized and partisan history. Against this worry, Michelle rightly insists, I believe, that we have a moral interest in history that, when carefully articulated and adequately addressed, enables us to make use of history in political argument and moral reflection. Our moral interest, Michelle suggests, is at least in part an interest in properly attributing moral praise and blame to past actors for their actions and motives. Michelle hopefully invokes Annette Gordon-Reed's work on Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings as an example of the sort of historiography she has in mind, but more philosophically, I think, could be said here, specifically as to the criteria that historiography that provides for the possibility of moral praise and blame has to satisfy. Here again, I suggest a Du Bois provides a useful supplement to Michelle's insight, for he explicitly criticizes histories that discuss slavery with moral impartiality, depicting America as helpless and the South as blameless, while explaining the war difference as a sort of working out of cosmic, social, and economic an example of this sort of history is Charles and Mary Beard's, he says, sweeping mechanistic interpretation of the Civil War, where there is no room for the real plot of the story, I'm quoting Du Bois here, for the clear mistake and guilt of rebuilding a new slavery of the working class in the midst of a fateful experiment in democracy, for the triumph of sheer moral courage and sacrifice in the abolition crusade, and for the hurt and struggle of degraded Black millions in their fight for freedom and their attempt to enter democracy. Can all this be admitted and half surprised? pressed in a treatise that calls itself scientific, Du Bois asked. If history is to be a science of human action that gets at the real and thus moral plot of human events, then Du Bois believes it must take account of the subjective meanings of actions and events. He implies that the historian cannot truly tell the story of the mightiest effort of the mightiest century, the struggle of enslaved Blacks to achieve democracy, without taking account of the psychology of the agents whose actions sustained that effort. More generally, Du Bois insists that the historian of slavery asked, just what did slavery mean to the owner and the owned? 
Du Bois is a moral realist who believed that historical knowledge includes a knowledge of the moral worth of the motives that explain human action, thus not only the knowledge that such and such actions are right or wrong, but that the motives which explain those actions are morally blameworthy, or again, that they are morally praiseworthy. But to obtain that knowledge, historians must understand human action in terms of their subjective meanings, for they require some such understanding of human action to render intelligible their application of the vocabulary of moral evaluation. For Du Bois, a vocabulary that includes the language of guilt, of moral courage, of sacrifice, and of the degraded Black millions. Du Bois argues that a necessary condition of the possibility of acquiring knowledge of moral facts through the historian's practice of the science of human action is what Max Weber would have called a Erverstehen-centered approach to that practice, an approach that explains human actions in terms of subjects, motives, or purposes. In sum, then, Du Bois provides fuel to Michel's moral realist or moral objectivist fire by making a case for the sort of historiography we require if, on moral realist or moral objectivist grounds, we wish to resist the charge of politicized and partisan historiography and still morally praise and blame historical actors and their motives. And that's all the time we have for today. I want to thank Michelle Moody Adams and all of the panelists who were present at the event. My thanks to you as well for listening. Once again, today's episode was celebrating recent work by Michelle Moody Adams. The title of her new book is Making Space for Justice, Social Movements, Collective Imagination, and Political Hope. The SOF Heyman Bookshelf is sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans at the Faculty of Arts and Sciences and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. Our theme music is Moonrise by Paddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. I hope you'll join us again next time. <laughs>